0: Welcome back to What Makes You Tick. I'm Stephen Bradshaw, and the reason I created this podcast is to help you find inspiration from the stories and experiences of others. What Makes You Tick is a vehicle for people to share their life's knowledge, their passions, and experiences with you. I get energy and inspiration from talking to people, and my goal through this platform is to help you learn from others and use this knowledge to inform your lives. My guest today is a remarkable lady, Tina Qatari. Born in India, Tina grew up in the UK and on completing a degree in philosophy, entered the world of e-commerce and banking to become a company director at the age of 26. Now, following a period as a full-time mother, Tina then qualified as a counsellor and as a trainer in humanistic neuro-linguistic programming and psychotherapy. That's a mouthful. Over time, Tina developed expertise in working with addictions, eating disorders, and trauma. Tina describes in our conversation a time she worked in a war-torn Croatia, and how it gave her another perspective on life. Tina says... She worked in people development for over 26 years and this has led her into boardrooms and large organizations delivering bespoke programs among executive leaders where she has become a renowned mentor and advisor to many leaders we know today. What's even more inspiring is Tina's work with Another Way Now, an organization she founded with the focus on shining a light on human rights issues. And this is why I asked Tina to also become part of the What Makes You Tick guest list. They create events that bring various topics that are otherwise unknown to many to light and it's harrowing what is going on in the world and by making people aware of this we can begin to potentially find a solution. So without further ado people here is my conversation with the wonderful Tina Kathari. Tina Qatari thank you so much for joining me on what makes you tick welcome to the show how are you?
1: Thank you. I'm fine. And thank you for asking me.
0: Uh, it's great to have you on board. Um, Tina, I think it should be good to note at the start that there's a bit of continuity between uh, season one and season two. And that my sister, who is my first guest in season one, mentions you um, wholeheartedly and with a lot of um, positive uh, comments and very warmly shares what your influence has been on her and her career, not only as a mentor and a life coach, but also as an, and now a friend um and i thought from that conversation i think i i reached out to you pretty shortly afterwards and i was like tina would you be would you would you like to join uh what makes you tick and thankfully between the jigs and reels after the last uh length of time we've got the opportunity to sit down so thank you very very much you're Um, welcome the conversation obviously what makes you tick is all about uh what motivates people what drives people and and i love to learn from others as i've kind of alluded to you before um i'd love to start with your maybe journey and your career because it's quite interesting and it's quite um inspiring in that where you've come from in terms of being born in india and then moving to the uk and then um finding a way to become a director in different companies at age 26 and then to focus your time in the last 20 odd years in people development, I think it's an incredible journey and now what you're doing with another way now is remarkable. So maybe it would be good to start from there and maybe uh, summarize where where your path has brought you.
1: Okay. So um, <clears throat> I went to a very posh girls school had to wear a hat and travel on the tube. And uh, our skirts had to be a certain length and we used to have to kneel down and have it measured from the floor up. And uh, and of course, you know, I'm an Indian and I ha- we had a pretty Indian household um, and my school was very white, very English. And there was kind of schizophrenia, I think, that existed at that time um, between the two different cultures. And little did I know then how that would stand me in good stead because the ability really to adjust to to such different worlds has um, made it possible for me to do a whole variety of different things in different ways and add to my portfolio of experiences. And I I feel very grateful and very lucky, although it wasn't always easy at the time. Um, And then I went to university in York and uh, studied philosophy and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I loved being there and being you know with lots of people and partying and all of that kind of stuff but i also loved my course and um and again you know it's it's never left me the things that i learned there about people and thinking and certainty and knowledge and um you know how to construct an argument um all again you know fed into my portfolio of experiences so i came out of university with pretty average results but pretty prime experiences um, and then spent a year on a special temporary employment project on the Isle of Dogs, which is not a, at that time was a really pretty rundown, quite rough part of London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, then I went, I did an education project. We ran a book, a mobile book shop. We um, did an oral history project. Um, and we taught literacy to adults um, and it was really hard work but I loved it and it was very different and again it was a very different life you know I come from a um, a, a well-to-do Indian family and here I am mixing with really you know with people who are stuck in poverty really living in horrible conditions um, and it was again another eye-opener for me I I I think the, the most shocking thing for me was one day when I went to someone's house, uh, it was her flat. She was telling me about the history of the Isle of Dogs. It was part of the oral history project. And um, she offered me a cup of tea, um, but said it would have to be black because she didn't have milk. So I said, well, shall I go and get some milk? And she said, no, I can't get milk until Friday because that's when I get my money. Oh, wow. And I I had never experienced or understood that there is that kind of lack of access to money. I mean, you know, I've got a wallet full of cards and I can always borrow some, something off someone or take it out of a hole in the wall. There weren't holes in the wall at the time. But I just, I just never experienced what it was like to have nothing, nothing at all. And to be without milk, you know, for two days, because it was a Wednesday, it was again another eye-opener. And I think that I'm just, I'm just piling in the things that made things different. So my project ended and then I went to work at a confirming house, which is a bit like banking and a bit like a shipping company, an import export company. And um, I started at the bottom, you know, I was making teas and coffees. At that time, we had telexes. So I used to send and receive telexes. I tried to teach myself to read these telexes with the the dots on the fingers, a bit like Braille, um, with varying success. And then it, it's just it was just sticking with it um and being incredibly nosy listening into other people's phone calls watching what they were doing looking over their shoulders um and learning bit by bit you know what a good bill of lading looks like or how to organize a back-to-back letter of credit you know what happens if you're dealing with nigeria and there's a you know there's an 18-month pipeline in foreign currency and how do you cover that off so that no one loses any money and and i learned and i And I really did learn and managed to crawl up and start doing the bookkeeping and then went with the boss to negotiating with banks to get facilities. And, you know, I learned a lot and I learned it fast. And then, you know, life just threw me. Um, Well, it's not a curved ball. It was an opportunity. Um, The big boss had gone abroad and he'd had a heart attack while he was abroad. And he phoned the office and we were a holding company for about 15 different companies. And he, he called the office and he said, well, Tina, you can be director of X, Y, Z. So it was three or four of those companies um, just in order that I could, you know, authorize things, that I could negotiate things, that I could check the bills of lading, that I could, you know, do all the things that one needs to do, but that I had the authority to do that. So it wasn't as though I was like a, a high flyer with shiny shoes and a good suit because yeah. I really wasn't. It was just chance and it was a huge responsibility. And um and I I was frightened, I have to say. But my dad also, he's very smart and he, you know, he, he's a financial consultant and really su- successful. He's he's died now. Um but he really helped me, you know, and I would go home and I'd say, I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z, and he'd talk me through it and and I learned. Um, and I I learned and i learned fast and i loved that and somewhere in the middle of all of that i got married and then got pregnant and then 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 things got choppy for me in my life because i had my first child was stillborn then i had two live children then i had another stillborn baby and then i had another child so i had like i had five pregnancies in something like six years. It was really intense. Wow. And I didn't work in that time at all. I, you know, I stayed at home. I was at home for 10 years um, until my youngest went to school um, and was living in Lewisham at the time. And, you know, it was it wasn't easy. Um, I didn't I didn't like staying at home all the time. Um and I in a way i think i was i was like a child bringing up children you know i'd never had that degree of responsibility for children i didn't even know how to hold a baby um so that that was difficult we then made, made some friends we moved from Lewisham to croydon and made some friends some very very good friends and we're still really good friends now who had matching children okay. so you know the, the ages it. of mine yeah. matched the ages of theirs and uh, and they're all still friends you know and um and they're now also having babies. So I'm watching all of this stuff growing. So I while well, I we then moved up to Sheffield, so lots of movements, and you can see they're all such different places, Lewisham, Croydon, and Sheffield. And in Sheffield I took a counselling course and um and absolutely loved it. So I trained as a counsellor. I worked then in a rehab in Rotherham, which was mainly male all white, lots of ex-miners, rough drunks. And they used to call me the Ponzi Indian git. And I would, cause I would drive up in my bright red Vectra, which, you know, obviously it wasn't, it wasn't, it's not a brilliant car, it's not a Mercedes, but it's, it was it was Ponzi, you know, for them. And I'd turn up with my um, English accent and my red car and, um, but but I, I fitted in ultimately, it took a while, but I did fit in ultimately. And I saw some shocking things, you know, I witnessed men biting, a man biting another man's ear off. I, uh, a, a girl coming in who has been beaten up really badly. Um, you know, I just, and some of the stories were really horrifying. And again, I had the experience that, I, that I'd had when I was working on the Isle of Dogs. Mm. So I'd gone from, you know, this, very comfortable lifestyle um, into something so different. And again, you know, it's just actually, it's talking to you that's making me realize quite how schizophrenic my life was. I don't know if schizophrenic is the right way to say it, but how, how it was made up of such opposing experiences and forces. Um, is this too much detail?
0: No, this is, this is fantastic. This is exactly yes. it. I think it, just keep going. Just keep, keep, okay. keep, keep, sharing because, um, I think what's, what's so interesting, what I'm getting out of this is that you were thrown into the deep end in certain aspects in different stages of your life. And, uh, it's, you found a way to swim and you've used what you've learned to help reinforce what you can do for others as you've gone along. So please keep going. Yeah.
1: Well, I, um, I stayed on at the, once Once I'd done my internship, I had to get in something like 320 hours of work um, before I could get my certificate. Once I finished those 320 hours, I then um, asked for a salary and got one and I continued to work at the rehab and by that time I'd really found my feet and I'd got a rhythm and I was doing a weekend course in neuro linguistics um, in york so i headed back to york every week one weekend every month so it's really weird you know these loops and um and i loved it and um so i did the practitioners i did the master practitioners and then i went to the states and did the trainer's training um and it was in a place called lancaster pennsylvania not far from where rona is now and um that was bizarre as well so we're staying in this hotel and you know it was very nice Had good food, you know, lovely. The hotel itself was lovely, but you come out of the hotel and there was poverty again. So it's just like, so weird, just so strange.
0: The of a world, yeah.
1: I, you know, I just, I'm living in London as I do now. Sorry, just to jump for a second. I see it all the time. You know, I live in King's Cross, which is pretty fancy now, but all I have to do is cross York way, which is like less than 10 minute walk, and I'm in another part of London. And, and that's how cities work, don't they? They butt, they butt up, but you live on your own little planet within it. Anyway, I did my trainer's training and, um, and I failed in the assessment at the end. And uh, I, I, I went to the trainer, uh, the, you know, the teacher and just said, look, I've come all the way from the UK. I've spent this much money to be here. Um, give me another chance. It was a presentation that had to be made about language patterns. And, um, and he said, okay, I'm gonna give you 12 hours. I think it was 12 hours or an overnight anyway, to, to go and learn it. All night I sat up and learned this stuff, put together my presentation, did it, got my certificate and came back to the UK. Um, and now that I've got my trainers training, something different started to happen. Um, I got called out to other rehabs, so like priory hospitals and mental institutions and detox units and needle exchanges to train therapists or counselors um, in a particular model for working with addictions or eating disorders, and dissociative disorders of all sorts. And I I really enjoyed myself. Um, And by now I'm I'm living in Sheffield. Most of my work is actually in London. So I'm up and down the motorway, um, really exhausted, but really, really having a ball um, and decide at some point to set up a business. And that was my first business, Hexagon Training Company. And I ran programs for people um, in neurolinguistics, really, um, uh, in hotels in Sheffield and um, ran programs in councils. I ran programs in businesses. Um, I got the contract with to work with Virgin. Well, it weren't well, they weren't Virgin then, they were called Telewest. Telewest then became Telewest NTL, Telewest NTL then became, and then Virgin Media. And, um, and that got me into working with, um, of course, telecoms people. And around this time, a number of other things happened. I got a contract with um, the government of Croatia to go and work with their health workers and teachers um, and counselors to um, because they were dealing with war trauma and they were dealing with addiction. So I worked at a, a needle exchange in Split and then a whole, then a, a motley crew that all came um, and I ran a program once a month Mm-hmm. and it was it was hilarious you'd you'd love this because because the war had ended just two years beforehand um and they say you know with 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 war comes guns and drugs mm-hmm. and there was a really serious drug problem and uh i did work with this needle exchange called help in split and uh the two things that they couldn't get were needles you know so they were using old needles oh. and condoms okay and um okay. and <laughs> Lovely. so me and my kids um in the month before we would drive round and collect needles from old people's uh, out-of-date needles from old people's homes and condoms from hospitals old people's and homes, old people's <laughs> homes <yes. laughs> here you are the original geriatric condom and um, and at that time, and, and I would have them in black sacks in the basement of our house, and uh, and then when the month was, you know, when it was time to go, I'd put them in a big box, and um, and at that time there was a uh, an airport at Sheffield, and that's a whole other story. But there was an airport at Sheffield, but the runway was so short that it could the furthest we could go was Shiphol. Then I'd have to change flights. Okay. But it was great. I mean you could I could almost sneeze in my bed and end up in the plane because it was yeah. so, so near. Yeah. Um, and the and it was like a ridiculous. It was like a um it's like a, a small warehouse. It was smaller than the smallest IKEA. Do you know what I mean? It was like it was tiny and it had it was long and it had a wall going down the middle.
0: Yeah. And
1: one side was town side and the other side was air side. And um, you, you you passed your bag through a hole, and uh, you saw a hand come out and take the bag. <laughs> and she's uh, like, "There wasn't any rolling ramp." What's or the anything.
0: password? <laughs>
1: oh, it was so funny. And 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 you you arrive, and I arrived, and there's the cafe, and the cafe is a U shape. So half of the U is on the on the city side, and the other half is on the air side. So I I would get my hot chocolate. On the on the house side, on the on the city side, and the flight was at some god o'clock in the morning because I remember going there when it was dark so often, and uh, I'd have my hot chocolate. Then I'd go airside and I would still have to wait, so I'll ask for a hot chocolate. And they said, "Oh, we don't do hot chocolate." I said, okay. you, you, "You just served me round there with hot chocolate." "Oh no, no no no, we don't do hot chocolate on this side, hot chocolate on that side." I think what? Yeah. <laughs> this bizarre. is the most bizarre, yeah. bizarre, bizarre, bizarre. But here's the thing. Um, Obviously they got to know me really well and um, they called me the party girl because they would open my box and in it was just like needles and condoms. She's going partying, you know,
0: (laughs) 400 needles and 2000
1: condoms.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And how long, how long were you, were you over and back to split for?
1: I, I did Croatia for three and a half years.
0: Okay.
1: And it was, Really, really. In the end, I handed over to somebody else because I went up to a place called Vukovar, um, which was absolutely destroyed. It was at the t- it's the top of Croatia. It held the war back for three years. They fought, but the, the, you know the, the Serbs and the Croats were living side by side, but they turned into enemies overnight. And I worked. If, with a team headed up by a man that we called um, Freud, because he always said to me, what would Freud say? Right, <laughs> you don't give a shit what Freud would say. It's really about what you're dealing with. But This guy, you know, Dr. Scotulich, I think his name was, um, uh, he he said he woke up on the morning, on one morning, went to his ward and the whole ward was dead. They'd just been shot in their beds. Oh. and. And there were these mass, as you drive into Bukovar, I mean, I remember being, <laughs> I, um, the woman who hosted me, she was, she was a, 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 some mental health chief with Vrapcha, which is a mental hospital in Zagreb. Um, and she hosted me for most, most of the places. And she, she drove this ridiculous car, which, you know, I think when it reversed, I think that the speedometer went backwards as well. <laughs> she smoked nonstop. She was probably about 60 at the time. Um, she was crazy. She always tried not to pay me, and um, but she was a, a mover and shaker. You know, she'd obviously obviously got stuff, and we did this long drive from Zagreb up to Vukovar, um, and stopped, um, stopped at Jakovar, I think I can't remember what it was called, where we met the some bishop, somebody you know, a holy man in a dress, and. Um, and there were holes in the wall of the church where the gunshots, you know, where the guns had hit it. And then we got to Vukovar and I tell you, it's like something out of a, a movie because the buildings as we approached were like ripped apart. You know, they had no roofs or the staircases were hanging out the windows. Yeah. Um, there was grass growing up through the middle of buildings. We get into, you get into Vukovar and the pavements, I mean, it was really bizarre. Like the pavements were all disrupted. They're Chucked up. They had a sports stadium which the the top floor had tipped down. And then they had the cafe. And I mean, they do have, there's something quite Italian, I think, about the Croats. They're so close to Italy anyway. Um, And they've got a real coffee culture. They love their coffee, they love their cigarettes, and they love their shots of alcohol as well. (laughs) And this cafe that we went to had tin tables, like, you know, horrible tin tables. And they painted this. Higgledy peel the pavement green to make it look like it was grass. And then we sat there looking at this weird scene, you know, with this dilapidated old sports center and um drinking disgusting coffee. I mean, it was coffee like syrup. Yeah. And that got to me. And we went to Central Square, and that's where the market was, and there were trestle tables everywhere. And like y- you know you must know what a, a thriving market looks like there's lots of hubbub and people and laden tables well it wasn't like that okay it wasn't there must have been five people there and they had like buckets of cheese in water like you'd see mozzarella in a packet it was some yeah. cheese that was yeah. in a liquid uh, and then you'd just have like 16 tomatoes and it was just it was bizarre and very very eerie and quite silent and upsetting and I came back from that and I remember landing back in Sheffield and I was really really upset and going home and calling my husband and saying please come home you know I don't I don't think I can do this anymore and you know I felt like the children weren't safe I felt like the world wasn't safe like it wasn't dependable and I turned from this maverick hat wearing woman into really quite a fearful person and that's just not good enough you can't teach from that position you can't train from that position you can't help anyone from that position Mm. and um i had to finish my contract and i didn't actually i left um i can't remember how many modules there were but i left three modules and and found someone else to deliver them and of course it was an opportunity for another trainer Mm. to do something you know as prestigious as that yeah um and then came back to the uk by now i was giving Seminars in I I did one in Denmark and I did one in Norway and I did and I did some in in New York and New Jersey and began to get an, a name not like a huge big name like everybody would know me nothing like that at all but it, enough people knew something and and then the work began to come in from other places.
0: So don't miss out on part two of the conversation and for all future episodes, subscribe to What Makes You Tick to stay up to date.